0: Welcome to a Nutrition and Clinical Practice Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hasse, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Joining me today are two of the authors of the paper, Nutrition and Metabolic Support Recommendations for the Bariatric Patient, published in the December 2014 issue of NCP. I'm pleased first to introduce Colleen Isom, msrd LBN, and Chris Mogensen, msrd LBN. Colleen is a registered dietitian and program manager for the Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and Chris is a team leader and nutrition support dietitian in the nutrition department at Brigham and Women's Hospital. So thank you for joining me today, and I'd like Abby. to first start by asking Kelly and Chris if they have any disclosures on this topic that they'd like to share. This is Kelly,
1: I do not. And this is Chris, I also do not.
0: Thank you. Again, thanks for joining me today. I think what we've seen over the last few decades is obesity has just become one of the leading global health issues. And as you discuss in your article because of that explosion of obesity and its health risks Bariatric surgery has become more prevalent than in past decades with over 200,000 procedures performed yearly in the United States. There are certainly nutritional implications to bariatric surgery and I'd like to explore some of those issues with you today. So Colleen, I'd like to start with you. In your article, you talk and you describe the different types of bariatric surgery that are being performed today and you also mention that the hormonal changes vary based on the type of procedure. Can you describe what hormonal differences exist between these different types of surgeries and that how that ultimately affects weight loss? Yes, so there's four different types of
2: weight loss surgery that are typically performed. So we have the gastric bypass, the sleeve gastrectomy, the gastric band, and the last one, the biliopancreatic diversion with or without duodenal switch. Now, we consider the gastric band strictly a restrictive procedure. There are only improvements in comorbidities because of the weight loss. And we don't see a change in any hormone after the procedure. Patients have restriction on what they eat, so they lose weight. On the other end of the spectrum, the opposite end, we have the biliopancreatic diversion. And that changes how much a patient can eat, but it also causes macronutrient and micronutrient malabsorption as well as hormonal changes. So we see changes in hormones like ghrelin, the appetite stimulating hormone with this procedure. We see a decrease in hormon- in ghrelin after surgery. With the sleep gastrectomy and the gastric bypass, they also have a decrease in ghrelin after surgery. But we don't see the malabsorption of macronutrients like we see with fibular pancreatic diversion. So patients experience an immediate decrease in physical appetite. They're just not hungry after surgery. And so they don't have to, quote, unquote, diet to see the results
0: with weight loss. Colleen, I want to kind of go along with some of the things that I saw in your paper. And one of them was that while wow, bariatric surgery can have positive effects by inducing weight loss, there are certainly some potential negative effects especially with regards to micronutrient deficiencies. In fact, in your paper, you have a very useful table that highlights which vitamin and mineral levels should be checked at baseline and then at different intervals post-surgery. Can you highlight for our listeners the basic premise of why these are the specific nutrients that should be monitored and why we should be monitoring those serially?
2: Yeah, so I really like the table because it's providing you the recommended depletion for the micronutrient deficiencies. So these are current recommendations. So we start with the gastric band, and this is the procedure where we're going to see the least amount of micronutrient deficiencies because there's no malabsorption after the procedure. Patients are recommended that they take about 100% of the recommended dietary allowance or adequate intake for most of the vitamins and minerals. And we're unlikely to see deficiencies develop if they take these vitamin and mineral supplements. But we have seen deficiencies in vitamin D, calcium, and iron after the gastric band. And it's most likely related to a lack of intake of foods rich in these sources. Now, the next procedure, the sweet gastrectomy, it's next on the scale of micronutrient deficiency risk we have patients take about 100 to 200% of the recommended dietary allowance. And we see deficiencies in iron, vitamin B12, calcium, and vitamin D. Now, we're removing about 70% of the stomach, specifically the fundus, so we're reducing access to the intrinsic factor, and therefore we're affecting how vitamin B12 is absorbed further down. With the gastric bypass, we're going to see a higher risk of micronutrient deficiencies because we're not only bypassing the duodenum, we're also reducing the size of the gastric pouch. So we remove the fundus, we have this small gastric pouch, and the vitamins and minerals that we're most concerned about are vitamin B12, again, iron, calcium, vitamin D, folic acid, and thiamine. We're separating the fundus from the gastric pouch. So again, we're decreasing access to intrinsic factor, which helps with vitamin B12 absorption further down in the small intestine. And then we're decreasing acid secretion, which helps absorb iron. And then we're bypassing the areas where iron, folate, thiamin, vitamin B, and calcium are maximally absorbed. So we have to monitor those vitamins and minerals carefully for life after the gastric bypass. And then lastly, with the biliopancreatic diversion, we see the highest risk for micronutrient malabsorption. And I already mentioned there's malabsorption of macronutrients as well. But as far as the micronutrients are concerned, we see much greater malabsorption and therefore these deficiencies because we're bypassing a greater length of the small intestine. So not only do we see some of the same deficiencies that we see with the gastric bypass, but we also see a deficiency in fat-soluble vitamins, like vitamin A, D, E, and K. So patients do need to take more supplements, specifically supplements with these fat-soluble vitamins after they have this procedure. And then we also have seen deficiencies in zinc and copper occurring after the biliopancreatic diversion and the gastric bypass. Patients who aren't supplemented properly with zinc and copper are more likely to be deficient. And so we have to be more careful about monitoring zinc and copper status.
0: In your table, you kind of give us the monitoring and supplementation recommendations that really kind of represent a best-case scenario. I'm just curious as to what kind of barriers if any of you encountered following that protocol. In other words... Does medical insurance typically pay for those tests or are your patients compliant and returning to your facility to get those tests done? Is it difficult for patients to get the supplements that they need or, or is there even a time where it's no longer necessary to monitor those micronutrient levels?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, if insurance is covering these procedures... They're more likely to pay for the biochemical surveillance. So there are going to be certain vitamins and minerals that are more expensive than others. Um, typically, on, in, on our end at our facility, we see that zinc, copper, and vitamin A are, are the most expensive. But there's always going to be differences among payers. We do have to monitor patients for life. Our data shows that the rate of micronutrient deficiencies increases over time, except for folate. So. At the same time, patients are less likely to follow up with, with less surgery centers in general over time, so we're going to be seeing deficiencies over time. Um, and so we have to make sure that all healthcare providers are aware of the proper biochemical monitoring, what these patients need, the proper supplementation, and we also have to educate our patients to make sure that they understand they have to come back for regular monitoring and that they need to take their vitamin and mineral supplements. It can be challenging for patients to take the recommended supplementation. It's it's quite an intense routine and regimen. We want patients to understand why they need to take certain vitamins and minerals after surgery. It's an extensive regimen. If cost is an issue, we will try to write prescriptions. If access is an issue, we absolutely recommend that patients purchase over-the-counter supplements. We can make those work. They don't necessarily have to purchase expensive bariatric surgery, vitamin, and mineral supplements. The biggest issue is really just patient forgetfulness. I mean, we're all victims to it. So we're hoping that the patients who are following up are also more likely to take their supplements. And if they're not, hopefully they're getting the positive reinforcement from us so that they'll continue taking the supplements. I'm not sure if Chris has anything she wants to add on that end.
1: Yeah, actually, I do have a few things. Sometimes these patients get admitted, and it might be the inpatient dietitian coordinating with outpatients saying, hey, you know, we have this patient who's been admitted, this patient of yours. Are there micronutrients that we can get drawn for you while they're here? The captive audience, we can arrange to get the appropriate micronutrients drawn. We may also see some of the deficiencies in inpatient settings. So we may do targeted micronutrient monitoring. You know, we've certainly seen the copper deficiencies if someone comes in with a neuropathy or if we have someone that we're concerned, if they've come in with nausea and vomiting, we might get a thiamine level. So there's some specific things that we can do on in the inpatient side that sometimes are a little easier than outpatient because the patient is a captive audience. We do sometimes have some problems. We might get the tests ordered, but the blood draw might not be done correctly. And so we may help work with the team to get the blood drawn correctly. So, for example, you know, vitamin C needs to be put on ice and protected from light. And so if that's not done, the sample might be rejected. So we might work with either you know the IV team or the nurse or whoever is doing that particular blood draw so that it does get done automatically or, you know, so it's done appropriately, rather. We yeah. alluded
0: to this already, but I want to explore the vitamin and mineral supplements a little bit more. As far as which ones do you recommend for your patients? Is it easier from an access and a cost point of view to use a general over-the-counter type of supplement, or is there a special medicine bariatric supplement, or are you recommending prescription versus over-the-counter supplements?
2: We try to make it as easy as possible for our patients. So as far as the supplements are concerned, we educate them on what they need to look for and we encourage them to purchase the inexpensive over-the-counter vitamin and mineral supplements. Now what's unique to weight loss surgery is that it is recommended that you take a chewable or liquid supplement at least early postoperatively to enhance the absorption. We just don't know enough about the absorption of different vitamins and minerals and different products to really know if this is necessary long term. So there will be some patients who eventually take whole pill supplements, but we want to make sure we monitor their labs closely to make sure that they're actually getting all of that valve that they're taking. So there's definitely no need for the expensive bariatric products, especially if they can find the supplement at the store. But some products, some of the bariatric products do offer everything they need and it makes it easy for patients who just don't want to think about it. And so that can be an option for them. We educate patients. We provide them with clear lists of what vitamins and minerals they need. And then we also provide lists of supplements if they're interested.
1: And then if I can just pipe in on the inpatient side, we would follow the same recommendations in terms of chewable versus liquid supplement But one thing that's different is that there are some times that IV vitamins or micronutrients are preferred. So, for example, our patient that we might be concerned about the risk of Wernicke's, we'd want to give IV thiamine in that case. And for patients with severe copper deficiency, we may replete them with the IV route of copper rather than oral copper repletion.
0: Let's kind of switch gears and talk a little bit about nutrition support now. So, are there any specific challenges, Chris, that you found with regards to enteral or preteral nutrition, such as access or other nutrition support issues in patients who've undergone bariatric surgery?
1: Absolutely. I think enteral access is a significant challenge in these patients because of their altered anatomy. And so, it does get a little tricky when we've had patients who've had surgery at another institution. And so we may get some imaging to determine what is this patient's anatomy and what would be the best way to obtain enteral access. A bedside insertion may actually not be safe in this patient population, so they may need endoscopic or fluoroscopic guidance to get a short-term nasoenteric feeding tube in place. For patients requiring long-term enteral access, you know our standard would be a PEG, But in this case, patients who've had weight loss surgery a PEG probably isn't appropriate. So having a conversation with the bariatric surgeon to really be involved in that decision process about long-term enteral access is really important and helpful. So these patients may, if they've had a room wide gastric bypass, perhaps they get a tube in the excluded stomach or feeding jejunostomy may be a better choice. So that team approach, working with the bariatric surgeon and the primary team is essential to get that enteral access. Central venous access for parenteral nutrition is probably less of a problem in this population as long as they have reasonable venous access. If it's a short-term course of parenteral nutrition, they have good peripheral veins, a pick should be fine. And, you know, we've always got the one difficult patient that it's hard to get a line in, but for the most part, a short-term parental nutrition course, we do fine with a pick. Long-term access, we may think about a tunneled line or, in some cases, a port. But for the most part, those patients, if they have good venous access, you would sort of follow that standard decision process for what's the best central line for this patient.
0: Since there is an increasing prevalence of bariatric surgery, even those of us who don't necessarily work in bariatric surgery still encounter patients who have undergone bariatric surgery. For instance, patients may present for transplant or treatment of cancer or heart disease or be admitted to RICU after trauma or burn and they've had bariatric surgery. So what are some of the specific guidelines or tips you can share with the listeners about providing nutrition support to those patients? And that might be different than other patients who have not undergone weight loss surgery.
1: I am definitely seeing this come up more frequently. I'm seeing a lot more patients who've had weight loss surgery and then come in with another problem. So we actually recently had a trauma patient who had a fleet gastrectomy. I recently had a patient in our medical ICU who had a history of a room-wide gastric bypass, had severe pneumonia, respiratory failure, and was intubated. So it was a challenge to really figure out how to feed those patients. In those cases, we were able to successfully get enteral access after speaking with bariatric surgery and getting some help and getting the feeding tubes in place. And I think a really important thing to think about is that patient's altered anatomy and talking to the teams about, you know, what is the best way to feed this patient. So it really is based on the type of weight loss surgery that the patient had. So if the patient had a room-wide gastric bypass and the tube is actually in the small pouch, that's certainly not someone you're going to bolus feed. And there are times that the nutrition service is actually the one reminding the team, hey, remember where that end of that tube is and it's in the small pouch, I had a patient where the team wanted to give 500 mL water boluses into a 60 mL pouch. So we can do a lot of good reminding the teams about safe ways to feed this patient. We've also had weight loss surgery patients diagnosed with cancer, admitted for chemotherapy. And one thing that we need to remember is that these patients also can become malnourished, And there is some fallacy that obese patients can wait longer, that they might not become malnourished, that they have plenty of reserve, but that's absolutely not the case. And so we need to advocate for these patients, just like we would any other ill patient, to get the appropriate nutrition support that they need. These patients can get severe amupicitis, severe diarrhea, related to their chemotherapy, and so they may need parenteral nutrition just as much as a normal weight patient. So that's something that we occasionally run into, so education of the primary teams with the risks of these patients is very important. There are additional nutrition support concerns that revolve around the micronutrient issues that we've already talked about, but I think that's important to emphasize that that risk of micronutrient deficiency and it's something that we should be monitoring and repleting if needed. So we should be in close contact inpatient with the patient's outpatient nutrition team to determine should we check any current levels, identify if the patient has any deficiencies. This comes up for our patients with large wounds. So, for example, if they're already zinc deficient, we really need to correct that to support that wound healing. And then finally, determining energy and protein requirements can be a real challenge in this population, depending on where the patient is relative to their surgery. Have they already lost a great deal of weight? Are they early in their surgical course and then have had a complication? And so coming up with what's the best way to determine energy and protein requirements can be a bit of a challenge. The ideal is to measure a patient's resting energy expenditure, but not every institution has a metabolic cart to do that, So the ASPEN guidelines for the nutrition support of hospitalized patients with obesity that came out in 2013 are really helpful. And then also the ASPEN and Society of Critical Care Medicine guidelines for critically ill patients also touched on managing the obese patient. That's also a really good resource. And so those are things that I draw upon when I'm managing these challenging patients.
0: Before we close, are there any other issues or topics that either of you would
2: like to address? So this is Colleen. One last thing I did want to just mention goes along with what Chris was saying about the importance of the communication with the inpatient and outpatient team. And I think that goes along with the long-term care of the patient as well. The more we can do to educate everybody in the patient's care team about what these patients mean and the long-term monitoring is just going to help these patients be more successful along time and hopefully prevent some of the deficiencies that we see.
1: Absolutely, and I'll tie into that. I think the communication inpatient outpatient contributes to better outcomes in these patients when they do have complications. Educating the inpatient teams about the unique needs of the bariatric surgery population is also important, and our goal is for these folks to have a very healthy life after their surgery, and that partnership is an important part of it.
0: Well, I want to thank you, Colleen and Chris, for sharing your expertise with our listeners. And I'd like our listeners and our readers to find out more about this topic in their article, which is entitled Nutrition and Metabolic Support Recommendations for the Bariatric Patient. It's published in the December 2014 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Thank you.